These are the stories of the pioneers, people and places in the central interior of British Columbia. Follow along with the tales written by local historian Barry Sale in the Williams Lake Tribune. These stories are then brought to life by your host, Jason Ryle. Welcome to the Haphazard History of the Caraboo-Chilcotin Podcast. By mid-1858, it had become evident to Governor James Douglas that he had a stampede of gold seekers on his hands. The Hudson's Bay Company had known about gold finds on the Fraser River since early in 1856, and they had kept word of this to themselves, quietly sending gold, which had come in on trade, to Fort Langley for safekeeping. However, when the company had amassed some 800 ounces of gold, they sent it to San Francisco to be refined, and then the secret was out. Some 30,000 prospectors and entrepreneurs passed through Victoria and Fort Langley during the spring and summer of 1858. James Douglas had three major concerns. First, since most of the newcomers were American, he feared that they would make an attempt to take over the territory in the name of the United States. Secondly, he worried that there was insufficient policing for the influx of people. Some of them were rather shady characters. He didn't want to see a repeat of the Wild West mentality and accompanying violence which had plagued the California gold rush. The third problem was that Douglas's colonial government was virtually broke. He wanted to find ways to cash in on the influx of men, as well as on transportation, assaying, and taxation of the gold extracted from the diggings. At Douglas's urging, the British Parliament passed legislation creating the province of British Columbia in 1858, with Douglas as its first governor. That addressed his first concern. The British government also sent a contingent of royal engineers from England to enforce British law, to survey land, and to construct roads and erect community structures such as government offices, jails, and official residences. That took care of the second problem. To address the third issue, James Douglas himself began to implement creative ways of mining the miners. For example, he ordered a ship to be anchored at the mouth of the Fraser River, which sold prospecting licenses to every prospector who was making his way upriver. He imposed taxes on all equipment sold in the outfitter's stores, and he also charged levies to hotels, rooming houses, and roadhouses. He declared that all mining property was crown-controlled, requiring staking and registration. For about two years, Douglas considered the idea of a gold escort. This would be a paramilitary force created for the sole purpose of carrying gold from the current diggings to government assay offices at New Westminster or Victoria. In 1860, the gold commissioner for the Caribou, Philip Nind, made a formal request to Governor Douglas to institute such a service. He argued that it would strengthen the government's presence in the gold fields as well as provide a service to returning miners, who were easy prey for robbers. In July of 1861, 
At the height of the Caribou Gold Rush, James Douglas gave official consent to the formation of a colonial gold escort. A troop of a dozen men in smart new uniforms, heavily armed and well-mounted, was assigned to the command of Thomas Elwyn, a former British Army officer and chief constable at Yale. Douglas considered him peculiarly suited for the task by reasons of his knowledge of the country and his previous military experience. On July 9, 1861, the British colonist newspaper reported, The route of the escort will be from New Westminster to the forks of Quinell River via Port Douglas and Cayouche, or Lillooet. Ex-Justice Thomas Elwyn will have charge of the route from Cayouche to the Forks and will be accompanied by a sergeant and four soldiers of the Royal Sappers. The escort from Cayouche to Douglas or Port Douglas at the head of Harrison Lake on the trail to Lillooet will be under the charge of Mr. Henkin and two mounted police. The plan was that the gold escort would pick up gold from miners along the route for consignment to the coast for a fee until claimed by the owner. The cost was one shilling, about 50 cents per ounce of gold. The whole concept was not well accepted by the miners. There were already carrying companies such as Bernard's Express and Dietz and Nelson, which had excellent records transporting gold. As well, many of the miners preferred to send their gold to San Francisco, where they got a better rate of return. After working hard to get the gold, most were reluctant to let it out of their possession and chose to carry it out themselves. Finally, the government refused to guarantee safe delivery of the gold, something that the freight companies did routinely. On its first trip in 1861, the gold escort made it only as far as Lillooet before returning back. Only $10,000 in gold dust was transported. Later that summer, they tried again, making it all the way up to Williams Creek in the Caribou. The miners there, however, really distrusted the gold escort. Thomas Elwyn took it upon himself to personally guarantee safe delivery and fair compensation. Despite his efforts, only $30,000 in gold was brought down to New Westminster. A final trip was made in the fall, once again going only as far as Lillooet, and a mere $10,000 was brought back. When the cost of the venture was calculated, it turned out that the three trips had cost the government close to $30,000, and they took in less than $1,000 in fees. It was not the financial boon that James Douglas had envisioned. To add to the financial woes, a number of officers quit when Mr. Henkin ordered them to perform menial tasks, such as cleaning and polishing his boots and looking after his horse and tack. He also refused to fraternize with his men, even at mealtimes. The final straw was that the gold escort could not match or even come close to the delivery times achieved by the freight companies. The whole undertaking would likely have died a quiet death if it weren't for a well-publicized robbery in 1862. 
That summer, two merchants who were carrying $12,000 in gold from Keithley Creek to Cornell Forks were murdered. Public pressure for better policing and security in the gold fields gave James Douglas an opportunity to resurrect the gold escort, and he did just that in June of 1863. This time, it was a larger force of 15 men. Gone were the fancy uniforms and the paramilitary trappings, but the men were tough, well-armed, and competent. Two banks had established branches in Barkerville, and it was anticipated that they would use the escorts to transport bullion. <laughs> I mean, what could go wrong? When the gold escort arrived on Williams Creek that summer, they soon found out that very little had changed since 1861. The miners still distrusted a government operation, especially one which would not guarantee against loss. They still preferred to take out the gold themselves or to trust the existing freight companies. After six weeks, the escort convoy returned to the coast, carrying only $40,000 in gold. This trip had cost some $12,000, and the receipts were only $1,250. A second trip was taken with much the same result. This one brought back $95,000, of which $70,000 was consigned by the Bank of British Columbia. The other bank flat out refused to ship with the escort. The returns to the government for this trip were a mere $3,000. One final trip took place in the fall of 1863. A total of $78,000 in gold was brought out, of which $63,000 belonged to the Bank of BC. This proved to be the final trip for the gold escort. Although the gold fields of the Caribou had produced about $4 million that year, not quite 5% of this gold had been transported by the escort. It was quietly disbanded. In total, this scheme cost the colony almost $80,000, which in today's dollars would be about $1.6 The gold escort was an experiment, which never did meet expectations, or provide the hoped-for benefits to the young colony. It is now a little-known footnote in the colorful and interesting history of our province. For this episode, our gifted historian Barry Sale used information found on the internet, an article from a 1974 magazine entitled Canada West, and the writings of Mark Forsyth and Greg Dixon. That's all for today. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Jason Ryle. This has been the Haphazard History of the Caribou Chilcotin Podcast. Tune in every month on the Williams Lake Tribune website or subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Front Row Voiceovers in collaboration with the Williams Lake Tribune.